Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I am Michelle Cardell. She's an assistant professor at uh, University of Florida College of Medicine. She's in the Department of Health Outcomes and Biomedical Informatics. Uh, she's also part of the Center for Integrative Cardiovascular and Metabolic Diseases. So we're going to talk about obesity-related disease, it looks like. So, Michelle, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me about your research. So um, my my background is in nutrition and obesity. So I have a master's degree in clinical nutrition and then a PhD in nutrition sciences. And I'm a registered dietitian. But my, my focus for the last 15 years has really focused on, on obesity. What are the social and environmental and behavioral um, contributors to obesity? And then also developing healthy lifestyle interventions for adolescents with overweight and obesity. So you focus on adolescents or you focus on all people? Is the focus more obesity or is it more adolescents with obesity or facing it? So my research has spanned young children, adolescents, as well as adults. Uh, So obesity in general is kind of my area of expertise. But right now I'm very much focused on adolescents. Uh, because I have a five-year NIH grant to develop and implement this healthy lifestyle intervention for adolescents. Yeah, so for adults, you, know, you can tell them, do this, do that, eat this, don't eat that, etc. Uh, for adolescents, do you appeal to them? Do they have to be on board or do you appeal to the parents? Like, What's the dynamic look like? Yeah, so we have done a ton of formative work um, to basically find out the very questions that you're asking. So we, the, before we started even working on the curriculum, we did a full year of formative work. Uh, we did 10 focus groups with adolescents with overweight and obesity to identify what are their perceived barriers and facilitators to weight loss and to a healthy lifestyle. And then what is it that they want in an intervention? And some very clear uh, themes emerged from that data. One, it's that adolescents want the option to have their parents involved in these interventions, but they don't want it to be required because some adolescents report that their parents are are very helpful and very supportive in helping them um, achieve their lifestyle-related goals. But others um, spoke about how their parents are actually a hindrance to um, achieving these healthy goals. And they often recognize that that their parents are well-intentioned and the parents want to help them But by doing things like making comments about their weight or what they're eating or their physical activity or lack thereof, that it actually induces a great deal of shame um, and guilt within the adolescents that doesn't make them want to move forward in these changes. And so they've asked for quite a bit of autonomy. So we do a six-month intervention, 15 sessions over that six-month period, and they're an hour and a half each, and we invite the parents to attend three of them have fun and I don't know, maybe it's the same for everybody until you ask them and probe a little bit. They probably don't think about it in terms of that with goals. They just have wants. 
Yeah. So that, that's what was so fun about doing these 10 focus groups. Um, and, and then now having actually implemented the intervention over the last uh, year and a half or so, the, the adolescents are very clear on what they want and they are, um, it's, it's such a joy and a, a real privilege to get to work with these teens because they're incredibly insightful. I feel like they're much more advanced and mature than, than I certainly was at their age. Um, but yes, definitely have clearly identified goals. We talk a lot about our values um, and, and you know the difference between values and goals. Goals are something that we can achieve. You know, I can set a goal of I'm going to walk for 30 minutes, five days this week, and I can achieve that and I, I can move on to the next one. Whereas values are something that are basically our compass or our North Star that are ever present and ever guiding us through um, our life's journey and our decisions and our day-to-day choices. And so we do a pretty deep dive with them into their values. What are their values? And then how is are those values going to help drive them and keep them engaged, not just throughout the six-month intervention, but beyond over the course of their life? Um, our hope is that through this program, they're learning the skills and strategies needed to maintain a healthy lifestyle over the long term. Well, what are some of the, you said they're very clear. Mm-hmm. So I would bet you that you were surprised at the clarity of the goals. And then what are they? What are some examples? Yeah. So, I mean, everybody had very different ones. Um, Some of them originated from more um, medical-based goals in the sense of um, some of the adolescent girls with obesity, for example, uh, talked about a a desire for overall health and, and wellness. So one of those things that was a barrier for them to getting that was, um, their, their breasts. And so uh, many of the girls in our program have actually expressed a desire to uh, acquire breast reduction surgery in order to um, live like a more full life and a, a, a pain-free life. You know, at the very young age of 16, 17, 18, uh, it's already uh, become a barrier for them and, and has affected their quality of life. And so I often hear their value system being really focused on, um, you know, overall quality of life, being able to be um, a a role model for their family. And that can be for younger siblings. It can be even for their parents. Um, Things like a love of travel or adventure or exploration and recognizing that, um, you know, sometimes they're, they're, their weight or their health can get in the way of that. Um, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of mountains to hike and places to go. Uh, so, so those are some of the ones that stick out to me. But education is also one. Um, a lot of these kids have, have big dreams and big goals. Um, and they really see that uh, a journey to a more healthful um, lifestyle as being a key component to helping achieve uh, these values over the long term. Well, uh, quick question here for for girls and for women that are you know obese. Does that go into the the breast tissue a lot? Like if they lose weight, they become more of a you know of a, of a non-obese weight. Does their breast size come down or does it stay? Well, it, it, that there's actually huge variability in that. So it really depends on the person. So the reason why a lot of these um, 
girls want to do our intervention is because they've already gone to a surgeon and the surgeon has told them, I'm happy to do the breast reduction surgery for you, but you have to get to a certain BMI. Otherwise, there's a significant risk on the operating table. So we need you to get down to this, whatever BMI it is that the surgeon deems um, in order to ensure the highest level of safety for you when I'm operating on you. Well, but sometimes if they lose significant weight, their breast size still won't change and sometimes it will. Exactly. Hmm. I wonder what governs that. That's interesting. Do, you, do, do people see that with other parts of the body? That some are just stubborn and tend to hold on to the extra adiposity longest or longer? Yes, absolutely. So there's a, a huge genetic inheritable component to not just um, body size and weight, but also body shape and fat deposition. So where we tend to store fat is heavily genetically determined. Um, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the different types of quote unquote shapes, you know, a pear shape versus, um, you know, kind of an apple shape, things like that. Um, and so for some people, even when they lose a significant amount of weight, they're what they call kind of quote unquote stubborn fat sometimes does still remain. Yeah, I've seen like in men, you know, sometimes they have a big gut and the rest of them skinny. Yes. And then some are more evenly distributed and women, it's more, it seems like in the thighs and butt area. So hmm, interesting. What about the protocols, the weight loss protocols that you're developing? Mm -hmm. Anything you think that works particularly well? Yeah, so the, the therapy that we've developed is based on um, something called acceptance and commitment therapy or an acceptance-based therapy. So I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, which has shown to have modest to moderate results in terms of, of weight loss. And cognitive behavioral therapy is now kind of the field of psychology is, is deemed a second wave therapy, whereas these acceptance-based therapies are being deemed kind of a third, a third wave of, of therapy and intervention. And so um, the preliminary work in our intervention uh, has We've seen some preliminary success. Uh, we haven't done the large, fully randomized control, fully powered randomized control trial that we really need to um, determine efficacy or effectiveness, but hopefully we'll be able to acquire funding to do that soon. But the adult studies that have done this, um, in adults, we're pretty happy if we see, you know, about five to eight percent body weight loss over a one-year period. And studies using acceptance-based therapy from doctors Evan Foreman and Megan Butrin at um, Drexel University have shown about 13.3% body weight over a one-year period. So that's that's even reaching levels of like pharmacotherapy intervention or anti-obesity medications. Um, so I think if there is some really promising data out there. And I hope that we have the ability to um, pursue more research in this area of acceptance-based therapy. What does that mean, acceptance-based therapy? Yeah, so acceptance-based therapy um, focuses on a variety of factors, including things like self-regulation skills, um, mindfulness, as well as acceptance of uncomfortable internal experiences. And we utilize things like willingness to identify, you know, what, what are the experiences that we're having, focusing on accepting them and basically choosing to do these, these difficult or uncomfortable 
um, behaviors anyway. So think about, you know, weight loss is not as fun, quote unquote, as, you know, maintaining the behaviors that um, can keep us at a higher weight. So it is way more fun to watch Netflix and sit on the couch than it can be to go on a walk or, you know, it's more fun, quote unquote, to eat pizza than it is hummus and carrots or, you know, an apple and a cheese stick. And recognizing that there is discomfort and um, uncomfortable internal experiences that, that occur during the weight loss process, um, but choosing to, to engage in those behaviors that help us reach our goals and drive us towards our values, choosing to engage in those behaviors anyway. Uh, what are some specifics? Like, you know, I don't know what will, you know, they, the person would feel hungry and they want to eat something and they can't, or sure. so do they I, feel like they're doing everything right and other people are just eating whatever they want and they're thin and they're not? I mean, like, what do you mean? So, so think about like a cold winter morning, you know, your alarm goes off at six so you can go to the gym uh, before you head off to school or work. And you wake up and you're so cozy in that bed and you don't want to get up and you think, ah, you know what? It's fine. Like you're in your inside your head. You're saying, I'm, I'm cozy. I don't want to get up. Um, you know, using acceptance-based therapy would be recognizing, okay, I'm having the thought that I don't want to get up because I'm, I'm, it's cold outside and I'm cozy in bed. Um, and acceptance-based therapy would teach you the, the willingness to say, you know what, um, even though I'm having this thought and I'm having this urge to stay in bed, I made a commitment to myself and to my values to engage in these healthy behaviors. And I'm going to make the choice, even though I'm having these thoughts, to get up, put my sneakers on and go to the gym as I promised myself. Yeah, that wouldn't be easy to do. Everyone would love to just stay in bed and be right. normal. Yeah. Of course. Well, what factors external to the person uh, appear to be most important? You talked about parents being supportive or being dismissive or making comments, but what other factors? You know, if the kids are in school or with their peers, I mean, what what seems to impact them most? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. In our program, I, I don't have the data to support this. Um, we haven't really assessed this in our data analysis yet, but it appears to me the peer support that they're receiving from the intervention is going to be um, a significant predictor of, of their success. I think they've the participants really um, express that they, they feel really supported as part of the program. And that I think helps with um, continued engagement and retention. Um, other things that could potentially play a role are things like uh, the resources available to the teens. We have some, um, we have some data to suggest that uh, individuals in lower resource settings or lower social status settings um, may not have the same access or um, ability to engage in some of the health-related behaviors that we recommend in the intervention. So I'll be very interested to see if this intervention is um, effective across like the socioeconomic spectrum, for example. 
but because we're still so early in the research in terms of the teams, I don't have the answer for you that, um, that way yet. Um, in terms of the adults, they did not see that the effects of the intervention um, differed in terms of race or sex or socioeconomic status. So I hope to see the same thing in, in our, our intervention. So, I mean, in general, what do you see as necessary for someone to, uh, you know, to lose weight and keep it off? Yeah, that, that is an excellent question. It is, um, it really has to often come down to this recognition that obesity is a chronic disease and it's something that people are going to have to kind of work at for the rest of their life. Uh, I, I don't see obesity as being any different than asthma or diabetes. Um, you know, while you're eating a healthy diet and you're engaging in physical activity and you're taking your medications, um, your, your diabetes can get under control, but that diabetes never goes away. You know, you're never cured from the diabetes per se. Um, and so, Similarly with obesity, it's something, it has to be a lifelong commitment. And one of the, one of the things that I see that differs in obesity is unlike the way that we treat obesity in medical, unlike the way we treat uh, diabetes or asthma in medical care, where it's treated as a true chronic condition and care is um, available and accessible and paid for from our insurance companies throughout your life course. Um, obesity is often seen as kind of a one-time thing or, okay, you're going to lose this weight in the next six months. And then, you know, good luck. Um, we would never treat any other patient with chronic disease in that flippant manner. Um, so I think changes need to be made from both uh, an insurance perspective in order to cover obesity care, but also within the medical community to recognize that, uh, our, our patients with obesity need um, access to care for their chronic condition, um, just as we would with any of these other chronic diseases. If someone thinks, uh, you know, I haven't heard someone say, I have obesity, meaning like it's a good disease. Mm -hmm. But if they do, I don't know, it just seems like they may, uh, you know, like with other diseases, they may externalize that, oh, this disease happened to me, it wasn't my fault, and now I have this disease. And it seems like, I don't know, that thought pattern could lead you to, well, I'm just going to take medications and nothing I can do. It just seems to less less self-agency. I don't know. Is that right? Or you think that's a mistake to think that? Um, I, I certainly think that recognition that obesity is a disease is an important component because, you know, we are very much as a society, very stigmatizing. You know, nobody can look at you and know from looking at you that you have diabetes or asthma. Um, and with obesity, it's a, a disease that's worn on the outside. And when people look at you, they can see that. So the amount of discrimination and stigmatization that is, um, you know, given to people with obesity is incredibly harmful, not just for their mental health, but also for their physical health. And so I think we really need a paradigm shift in how we how we look at obesity. The data is very clear. I mean, up to 70% of our body size and shape is heritable. 
Um, and I and I don't want that to sound as though it's deterministic that simply because you know um, seventy percent up to seventy percent of our condition may be attributed to genetic factors, there's still um, very much a component where we can have a say or play a role in in what those outcomes can be, but also recognition that um, there is a great deal of diversity in body shapes and sizes, and that we as a society need to stop equating um, body size to health, that we can't, we really can't determine anything by a person's body shape or size, and at the individual level, look at, you know, determine health outcomes. That's why we really advocate for much more thorough, uh, you know, social history, medical history, and assessments when um, our patients with obesity come come into the office and really start off with asking the question like, "A, why are you know why did you come in and see me today? Tell me about that." And then if if it comes up that um, you know whatever it is that they're seeing you for may be related to to wait, then broaching the topic as permission, you know, is this something that um, you would like to discuss with me? And if so, what are the words or terminology that you would like me to utilize? Um, and this is, these are the steps that we now have to take because the experiences that people with obesity have had have been so stigmatizing and so discriminatory um, that, you know, many people don't even want to go see healthcare providers anymore because that's been some of the source of the worst stigmatization and discrimination. And so we're, we're as a field, we're very much trying to move away from that. Well, what, you know, what's some examples like uh, people going to doctors and the doctors say, Hey, you need to lose weight. You know, are you going to have this, that, and the other happen? And they just, that's it. They just throw a prescription at you or just leave or like what, what kinds of things have happened? Yeah, so um, in in some of my focus groups that we've done with the teens, the teens have um, reported that the the physicians have made comments that are um, quite derogatory towards them or making assumptions about them simply based on on their weight. And then what's worse is then when they're diagnosed with overweight and obesity, the provider says to them, "Okay, now you have to lose weight." eat less, move more, see you in three months or six months. And, you know, to bring it back to this, the treatment of other chronic care conditions, we would never diagnose a patient with asthma and then be like, okay, you have asthma, uh, you know, try, try to breathe more. Good luck. See you in six months. You know, we, we really have to provide evidence-based care and resources for the patients in order to facilitate uh, change. Um, it's very difficult to, to lose weight and maintain weight loss without medical supervision or evidence-based treatments available. Um, and, and I know it's a struggle. You know, providers have very limited time that they can see patients. And I'm, I'm confident that they're doing the best they can with the resources that they have available. Uh, but but that suggests to me that we need to make changes um, because what we're doing now and just sending people on their way and telling them to eat less and move more, if it was that simple, I wouldn't have a job. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I remember going to a doctor, I don't know, right, 15 years ago. And, you know, I've always been heavy. And uh, 
he was lecturing me about you know what to eat and what to do and all that. And I looked and I'm like, this guy's just as big as I am. What's he talking about? <laughs> yeah, and and it's I mean it's very difficult. It's it's not you know I think one of the biggest misconceptions out there is that obesity is a reflection of a lack of willpower. In my experience with patients with obesity, the exact opposite is true. I I don't think I've ever had a patient with obesity come to my office and not have basically tried, I mean, every diet in the world. I mean, Atkins diet, paleo diet, ketogenic diet, vegan diet, like they've tried everything. And it's not them that's failing. It's, It's the system. It's it's the message that if that this is this is easy that this is simple all you have to do is quote unquote eat less and move more and what there isn't enough recognition of is the very real and very strong physiological drivers that that push people to to eat more when they're losing weight you know our bodies are very good at, at weight regulation and they want us to stay at that you know, they want us to maintain our weight, not lose weight. Um, and so recognition that that obesity is neither um, a crime nor a character flaw, and it is not a reflection of an individual um, or their willpower or character at all. So what do you see as the future of, uh, you know, obesity care? What's the picture look like for you? So I think we're moving along really well in three different treatment modality uh, domain. So one is the kind of more um, behavioral lifestyle intervention. And so that that generally tends to be kind of the first line um, of treatment for individuals who are non-responders to lifestyle behavioral intervention. Uh, there's now some pretty great anti-obesity medications that have been developed um, that we have approval for in adults. Um, they're starting to try and get FDA approval for some of these medications for adolescents. Um, and the preliminary data is, is very promising. And then um, for individuals who do not respond to lifestyle and or pharmacotherapy intervention, bariatric surgery is an incredibly effective um, treatment for obesity. And for individuals with obesity and diabetes, I mean, sometimes we're seeing complete remission of diabetes within even two weeks, um, even in the absence of significant weight loss. You know, there's only so much weight you can lose in a two week period, but complete remission of the diabetes. And so currently, uh, bariatric surgery is the most effective treatment that we do have available currently. So I hope that we continue to move in the area of personalized obesity medicine and identifying what are the factors that are gonna make um, somebody more likely to respond to a certain treatment. And so we can get them on the right treatment course uh, faster to get them to um, you know, the health that they want to achieve. Very good. Uh, Michelle, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research as you get along? Um, I'm very active on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Michelle Cardell on Facebook at Michelle Cardell and on Instagram at Dr. Michelle Cardell. I I do a lot of science communication and put all my research as well as um, the findings and translation of the research of others in those spheres. 
So if you're interested in obesity or nutrition, um, please go ahead and give me a follow and, and let me know what you think. Well, very good. Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.